The World According to Gorf. Hi, everybody. This is Jordan M. Gorfinkel, Gorf, and you're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. It's sunny, clear in New York City, and I am seated at the moment in a car because I am pulling together the band, bringing the band back together again, members of Beat Ahon, Jewish a cappella, who are going to be recording the final song to top off the a cappella treasury Yom Tov album. And part of my responsibility is picking up some of the members. And the first one that I'm picking up is Moshe Cohen, Dr. Moshe Cohen, who is coming off 24 hours at Cohen's Children's Medical Center of New York on the North Shore of Long Island. And funny enough, Cohen is spelled C-O-H-E-N, but Moshe Cohen is spelled C-O-H-N. So I think the first question we're going to have to ask him as soon as he comes down from his office is why they misspelled the name of the hospital. So here we go. The World According to Gorfan, the Nachum Siegel Network.
world according to Gorf on the Nahum Siegel Network. Seated in the car, driving through Queens on our way to a brunch with Moshe Cohen, Dr. Moshe Cohen of the Cohen Children's Hospital. <laughs> Not the same Cohen. Moshe, tell us quickly how we first met, what your involvement in music is, and what you're doing now professionally. I started my professional music career with uh, none other than Jordan Gorfinkel in, uh, in Bitachon, the uh, preeminent Jewish a cappella group, in the professional world at least, and uh, uh, spent the next 12, 13 years or so, I guess, moving up the ladder. Most recently, I was a full-time member of a uh, group called 613. Uh, we recorded four albums, all of which I'm very proud, and um, have since stepped back a little bit to spend more time with my medical career, but uh, still involved here and there. Now, be honest with uh, me, what's more exhausting, rehearsal with Bitachon or rounds at the hospital? Uh, rehearsal. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your experience at the hospital. You are a Jewish doctor. You are an observant Jew as well. You even started the process of doing smicha, studying to be a rabbi, at the same time that you were in medical school. So give us a little bit of that background. Well, the, the smicha part was much more for personal reasons, not for uh, career reasons, but um, was very helpful in being exposed to um, a great rabbinim in New York, uh, many of whom had uh, have experience in, in advising doctors from doctors. And so it was very helpful, especially before I moved on my medical career, to, to have a little bit of background and to at least know where to look for the answers when I had questions, or at the very least, who to talk to. Uh, it's difficult. I managed to get through my uh, initial part of my training um, without having to be in the hospital on Shabbos. Uh, or Yantif, but that gets harder as you move up the ladder, and especially I work in a field with critically ill patients, so I oftentimes have to be in the hospital on Shabbos and have to sort of work my way around that. It's easier, uh, if, if that's possible, because I deal with very, very sick patients, but there are still challenges, and uh, I have to work that out in whatever ways I can. Yesterday on Shabbat, I was in Teaneck, where you live, and you have an interesting commute where you have to have two river crossings that you have to undertake or overtake in order to be able to get to work. So what was the process that you took to get to work since your rounds began at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning? So I, uh, I have a, a cab that's ordered, a, cab, a local cab company that I order before Shabbos, and uh, they pick me up in the morning. It's all paid for by credit card. I don't carry any cash on me. I carry uh, only what's necessary with me to bring to the hospital, and the cab drivers know that they need to help me uh, move items in and out of the car, so I avoid carrying. They'll carry my things into the hospital for me, and I'll only bring things with me that I need on Shabbos, nothing for after Shabbos, which usually means I'm ordering dinner in on uh, Saturday night. Yeah, I pretty much have everything set beforehand as, as best as possible. How are you dressed? It's an interesting question. For Shabbos, I am dressed in shirt and tie. I make it a point to dress in shirt and tie every Shabbos when I'm in the hospital because it, you can easily get lost in the fact that it's a very busy uh, hospital unit, and um, it's one of the things that sets me apart both to others and to myself, that I am constantly reminded that it's Shabbos when everyone else is wearing scrubs and will usually change into scrubs actually once Shabbos is over, and I've done admire of assuming I have a moment free to myself. And when you make that change, what's the response or reaction of the other people you work with in the hospital? Um, by now they by now they know, and I'll walk around and, and uh, they'll see me in scrubs, having been in a, a certain shirt, uh, shirt and tie the whole day, and I'll say, "Oh, Shabbos must be over." And even the non-Jews will, will notice, "Oh, Sabbath must be over." But uh, it certainly gets a reaction um, from some people, and particularly the other Jewish uh, employees, who I think have a. Uh, 
have a healthy respect now for the fact that, that I am making it a point to dignify Shabbos, uh, even though I'm working. We're passing by some cyclists on a Sunday morning. Does your schedule allow you at all for having a life outside of the hospital? You have a family. Perhaps you want to talk about them and how you balance work and life. So uh, it's not easy. Uh, I work uh, as Anyone who's a doctor and is listening will understand. Uh, I work approximately anywhere between 70 and 90 hours a week and do my best to make time for my kids at night, the, the brief amount of time that I see them during the week. And uh, on Shabbos, maximize as much as possible when I'm not in the hospital and on weekends, again, when I'm not in the hospital. Uh, not to mention making time for my wife, which is, of course, also uh, crucially important to keeping a happy home. You know, do the best that I can, uh, you know, with the time that I have, and uh, hopefully that'll get a little easier once my schedule becomes more my own as the years go on in my, in my professional career. And you're how old right now? I'm 33 years old. 33, and you will be finished with your rounds and actually be a full-time doctor when? Well, I am a full-time doctor. Um, I'm currently doing subspecialty training, so uh, even though I'm still a trainee, I'm sort of high up on the ladder in terms of where I am, and um, the next level in terms of me being, I suppose, a fully salaried, uh, uh, specialty, uh, especially trained physician, uh, will be in a couple years. So I'll be at that time. I'll be 36 years old. I guess that's what I meant because, after all, in our capitalist society, you are not a full employee until you are being paid, or more accurately, you're paying back all of those loans. Exactly, <laughs> uh, and or getting. At the very least, I'm working 90 hours a week at minimum wage. So that's the nature of things. So you heard it here first, folks, when your Jewish mother says you should be a doctor. What she really means is you should be a doctor and skip immediately to after <laughs> you've done all your training. That's probably true. All right, we're at breakfast. Uh, let's pop into Bagels and Company in Queens, and we will continue our conversation. Nachum Siegel Network, the world according to Gorf. Comments? questions or you just want to fetch go to facebook.com slash the world according to gorf we're about to take notes on the song that we're going to arrange and i noticed you pulled out a an interesting looking tablet what is that uh it's a it's a windows based tablet um uh, that what's what's really nice about it is that it's, it has a uh, something called an active digitizer, um, which is a fancy way of saying I can take a, a special uh, pen, like a stylus, like the people you might see now with people use with iPads and other tablets, that I can draw on the screen. But the nice thing about it is that my palm won't get in the way, my hand won't get in the way. I can just write on it as if it were paper, and it saves automatically, and uh, it's just very convenient. What I actually really bought it for was the ability to um, be able to take notes. Uh, in the hospital on Shabbos. One of the, I would say, the two most difficult uh, problems facing Orthodox Jewish doctors in the hospital when working on Shabbos or Yontif is uh, travel, getting to and from the hospital, if you're on a, uh, a scheduled shift. Obviously, doctors can travel in an emergency. There's no, that, that, there's much, much more of a leniency. But traveling to a scheduled shift is much more of a problem because it's not an emergency. And the other problem is writing. Uh, one of the the, the Avos Malacha, which is a, a Malacha del Raisa, right, a, a Torah-based uh, biblical prohibition on Shabbos, is writing, writing in particular by, with pen and paper, which is a permanent form of writing. There is an institute in Israel called Somet, which produces various uh, pieces of technology that are meant for use by doctors and actually soldiers in Israel who have to work on Shabbos, and they find interesting ways of getting around Shabbos prohibitions. One of them, for writing, they have a pen that uses ink that's fruit juice-based, and so it's not permanent ink. It disappears after about 24 hours or so, and so that's not a, uh, it's not writing, it's not, let's say, it's not permanent writing, 
that writing will disappear, and it's not. And you couldn't use it, let's say, to write patient notes in a chart, but you could use it to just scribble, you know, jot down your own notes, and then perhaps write down your notes permanently after Shabbos. But they'll tell you actually on their website if you want to purchase a pen that the preferable way to uh, log information on Shabbos in a hospital, if you're a doctor, for purposes of patient care, is to use electronic media. So a computer, or in this case, oh, this is a computer, but I'm using uh, being able to write by hand, which for me is easier than to type things out, especially if I'm walking around the hospital. So the nice thing is I can carry around this very lightweight tablet with the pen that it comes with. Uh, and jot down notes anywhere I uh, find myself in the hospital and don't have to worry about logging on anywhere, printing anything out. I know it's going to save and, and then I'll have it. And it uh, really uh, solves a big problem for me uh, on Chavez in the hospital. Many of the prohibitions that we have involve preventing yourself, called offense around the law, preventing yourself from doing the actual malacha, the actual form of work. The practice itself is, not, is one step removed from that. It's not the actual prohibition. So how is using a tablet related to that? Well, there are two components. Uh, one is the act of writing itself. So in this case, there's no writing in the, in the, in the sense of what we, how we could refer to in a halakha. There's no ink and there's no paper. So without those two things, it's pretty hard to say that you're actually doing any sort of writing. The other component is the electronic component, which... Interestingly enough, um, is, or should I say not surprising, is a subject of, uh, still under some, some debate in, uh, uh, amongst the, the, uh, the sages of our time, uh, in the sense that because we don't really know how to define electricity in the, in the halakhic sense, um, it's hard to say whether electricity is actually prohibited on Shabbos at all, at least in theory. We've accepted it upon ourselves that it is prohibited for very good reasons, namely that when electricity was first invented, it was for the purpose of turning on lights and light bulbs. Your incandescent light bulb, which is burning with filament, is absolutely a biblically prohibited uh, malacha on Shabbos. You're creating a fire. That metal that glows inside a light bulb is ash. It is fire and it is burning. However, fluorescent light bulbs don't function that way. LEDs certainly don't function that way. And so the question arises when you have electrical appliances and other things like computers that, while they use electricity, don't necessarily create fire. What then is electricity? It's a very, very interesting and difficult question to answer. Throughout the, the 20th century, there have been multiple uh, opinions about what electricity, what kind of malacha electricity constitutes in Chavez. There's no real 100% consensus, and different communities and different areas of the world subscribe to different interpretations. But at least the way I was taught and the way I feel is that if we're not creating fire um, and if electricity is really not being used to create fire, it certainly wasn't prescribed by Chazal in terms of being biblically prohibited category of, of work on Shabbos. Uh, and so that means it's not a biblically prohibited activity on Shabbos. By that token, it couldn't be rabbinically prohibited either. It couldn't be a durabanan because they didn't know about electricity. And so the question is then, what has it become? There are opinions that say that electricity has become, in some sense, a minhag Israel that we've taken upon ourselves not to use electricity other than turning on a light bulb, which would be absolutely prohibited, but that in order to create a fence around that, that we wouldn't use electricity on Shabbos. And so we have all sorts of things to get around that, like Shabbos mode ovens and um, that institute called Soma that makes Shabbos mode uh, keyboards and um, computer screens and all sorts of stuff. Telephones, wheelchairs, uh, motorized wheelchairs. So um, if we if we're able to do that, well, if I if I'm involved in actual direct patient care of very ill patients, which would be absolutely you know pikuach nefesh circumstances saving a life, 
than doing something that potentially may not even be rabbinically prohibited on Shabbos is certainly preferable to doing a biblically prohibited act, even with a shino, even with something, doing it differently. So if I were to write with a pen with my right hand instead of my left hand because I'm a lefty, even that is still not as good as doing something electronically, typing on a computer as long as you don't print it out, and, um, uh, or what I'm doing with the tablet. We could get into detailed discussions to borrow a term from uh, constitutional law, whether we want to be originalists here in terms of halacha, or we want to be a living, breathing religion and religious practice. I think the thing that's fascinating is that Judaism is endlessly adaptable and relevant in every age. And even if we can't go back in time and introduce the idea of electricity, we have the means to at least deal with it in an intellectually progressive way without violating the original intention. You speak Hebrew fluently. Your wife is the uh, daughter of Israelis. And uh, yet you daven. Uh, well, you have to. You, you told a funny story uh, over Shabbat about how you grew up davening. So you have to repeat that. Yeah. I grew up in a Hungarian. Well, I should say a Hungarian shul. I grew up in a shul that where the rabbi and his family were um, Holocaust survivors from a, uh, a small town in Hungary. And so the shul, we dove in the Sussfard, um, and uh, with a lot of the Hungarian pronunciations that came in and out. Not always, but I got very used to hearing the Hungarian pronunciation. By the time I was bar mitzvah, I was davening, uh, I was able to daven Musaf on Shabbos in full-blown Hungarian Hasidish uh, pronunciation, um, which I can still do to this day, uh, because I, I heard it rush on Yom Kippur, I heard it on Yantef, it was, uh, so it's in my head. Despite the fact that my edu- subsequent education was largely in Havar Asfaradit, um, I still daven more or less Ashkenazis, and I lean that way too. And what happened, uh, there was one point when you learned that the way you thought something was pronounced was in fact not the way that it's pronounced for the rest of the world. Right, well, well I mean, I was pretty young, but when I, uh, first, the first time I ever davened in a, in a shul not my own, and I was old enough to, under, you know, to, to pay attention to the words, and I heard someone say uh, Kedusha, uh, and, and I didn't realize that, that I knew it as Kadishu. Right, my family, Chali was Chala, and we got a big kick out of that. You're listening to The World According to Gorf on jmintheam.org. One of the funny things is when people get up there at Kadusha, which is where most of the time you're singing these songs, where you're play, in Dominic, where you're placing the melody and just setting it to established words, and people will not think about where the high part is going and they'll start the song too high. I was in Teaneck, I was in a shoal, and there was a bar mitzvah boy, I won't say which one, because he was really quite good. He did something interesting. He did two low parts for a song, Naritzka and uh, Kivodo, and he never got to the high part. When he got to Mimkomo, he went to a new song, and then he did it again. And then he went low part and on Shema low part, and we never had any high songs. So I turned to my friend Dave and I said, I guess he is chorus averse. <laughs> Perhaps, or maybe he, that's how he practiced it and realized that he didn't have the, he just couldn't get up there. Yeah, I'm just very proud of the, the pun, the wordplay. <laughs> yes. But that happens when you do this stuff, you have to think about it. Sometimes you have to think about it lightning fast when you're a shalich tzibor. And sometimes you have to switch in the middle because you realize, uh oh, mm-hmm. I'm going somewhere that I really don't want to be going because <laughs> I can't. And then there are always a couple of very wise people who will come up to you later and say, hey, 
I noticed you changed the key in the middle. <laughs> the show is turning into secrets of davening. Secrets, yeah. Secrets of, of davening from the standpoint of a, a stage performer. Yes. Which, in a way, it is. I mean, your responsibility. That's why they, we, I call myself when I do this shaliach uh, tzibur uh, or a baal tefila as opposed to a chazan. A chazan uh, is formally trained in all kinds of ways. You going north or south? No, I'm going south. I'm getting out of this land, but there's just so many in my way. But when you're a lay person leading it, you're, I think your first responsibility is to get people into it. Right. It's not not about doing a performance and having having everybody going wow. It's about leading tefillah in a way where people are inspired and motivated to join in and lose themselves in the prayer. Right. Which is a very interesting thing. I, it's something that I, I think I struggle with almost every year. Um, I've been I've been davening. Um, I've been a baltila for Rosh Hashanah Kippur since I was 18 years old. Um, and and every year I think about you know. Do I want to be more of a performer this year? Do I want to be more of a baltila this year? Do I want to um, be more emotive or more um, uh, more of a showman, so to speak? And I always end up on the side of, you know, not only being more sincere, not to disparage any other baltila, but um, I always come down on the side of, uh, or I stay against being a showman. Uh, despite the fact that I have... Uh, you know, a good decade of stage experience. I never felt that the bima was an appropriate place for it, uh, and it's just my personal feeling. And I know that there are chazanim who feel differently, lay people, uh, congregants who feel differently as well. There are people who go to shul um, and want to hear a chazan. They want to hear the performance, um, and they find meaning in that, and it speaks to them, and that's great. Um, it's just not something that I grew up with or ever felt a feeling for, and perhaps it's because I'm a singer and that I. Um, I feel like even on stage, the, since the bulk of uh, the, the bulk of performing that I've ever done has been Jewish music, uh, and I felt that if I'm singing Divrei Kodesh, then they deserve the respect with which we give them in shul as well as out, uh, and so that warrants a certain amount of a focus on the on the words, on the lyrics, uh, and the emotion should come from that, especially if you understand what you're saying. Well, that's a big part of it because many people don't understand and don't understand what the words mean. Whether you're talking about the people who are davening or the people who are leading, context plays a big role in what we're talking about. Because if you are davening for people who don't have a strong background, there is an element of showmanship that is necessary. Because without it, they won't get into it because they've got nothing to relate to in what you're doing. Absolutely, but that's also that's also part of. You know, singing on key. Um, you know, keeping a, a decent rhythm, um, enunciating clearly. Those elements that are true of any performance. And yes, in that sense, it is a performance. Um, but um, I always find it very obvious when uh, a baltila is uh, not as familiar with the words, perhaps as he should be. That comes out in the performance. It, it would be the same thing for, the truth is, for any secular reporting artist. If you get on stage and you're singing any song, whether it's your own or someone else's, if you haven't internalized it, it's pretty obvious. I mean, yeah, you could fake it, but the performances that come across that are memorable, that people appreciate, are the ones where you really give it 100% and not just sort of take for granted, like, well, yeah, I, I can sing, I have a good voice, so I, and I can read, or, and, I know, and I know the lyrics, so I'll just wing it. Um, that is fraught with dangers for any performer, whether I think, whether it's, you know, 
surgical or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, that's constructing a performance. Speaking of constructing, we just passed over the Second Avenue subway line, which is in the middle of construction. I think it takes several opportunities to construct it before you can feel confident enough in, in all the aspects of being up in front of people and leading them in prayer, both from the showmanship aspect to the kavanah, the intent aspects, to the technical aspects as well, to the stage fright aspects. Right. It's tough to read this many words in front of so many people and not mess up. And when you do mess up, how do you deal with it? Right. I mean, you, you know how it is with Laney with the Torah reading. People throw tomatoes at you if, you, if you're <laughs> off by one comments cut on. Well, especially in the show where I daven. I guess that's part of the difficulty in, in doing in commercial in, da, in davening. Commercial davening, yes. Commercial davening or, or, you know, so commercializing Divrei Kodesh. Yeah. It's, well, yeah, that's essentially what we do with a lot of these Jewish music songs, though. <laughs> we're trying to find that, hopefully, we're trying to find that balance between the liturgy and the music while being respectful to the source material and taking it in a new and interesting direction where people will enjoy it and see it in a new way. I would say one of the things I learned from my time uh, with Bitachon uh, and something that I think I carried forward when I uh, joined 613 was really making sure that on some level that the lyrics and the music and the melodies uh, were appropriate for one another. Not in the sense of musical style, because I think that is very much a, uh, a personal, subjective uh, assessment. Uh, I remember once hearing from a, a rabbi's son uh, who was listening to 613. A uh, rabbi's son or the rabbi's son? <laughs> a rabbi's son. A, a, young, a young boy who, who had you know, listened to lots of, lots of music, and I had given him a 613 album, and uh, he's like, oh, it was so great, but... It's like there's, there's something about it that you know it doesn't have the same heartsig. He said it wasn't heartsig like you know if you listen to Mordechai ben David or, or any of the more um, you know yeshivish oriented uh, yeshivish crowd oriented music. Um, and I said, well, why do you think that? I, I, you know, I didn't take any offense. I just wanted to understand where he was coming from. I'm like, why do you think that? And he said, he's like, I don't know. It's just. It's just you know what you expect to hear at a wedding, and you you, you, want, you want to feel that there's some kind of uh, feeling to it. And I had a feeling a lot of that related to the pronunciation of words and and the rhythm and the beat that um, is you know has never left the, the Jewish music scene because of uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs and how we use our music. Um, but uh, you know at the same time. I'm from a world that uh, where I was exposed to many different kinds of music, um, and uh, there's you know it, those kinds of music that speak to me. I felt like were perfectly appropriate and and can be matched to other lyrics. So when when Mike Boxer uh, arranged Imashkach uh, Yushalayim in like a jazzy R and you know bluesy kind of uh, mode, uh, I was a little surprised at first, but realized that. It's blues, right? I mean, that's what it is. You're singing a sad song, and it, you know, and and I and I and then when I looked at it from that perspective, I was like, hey, wow, you know, this really this really works. But that's that could be a tough sell. <laughs> right. Well, I'm nodding in recognition because all these issues that we're talking about come back to what we're working on today because there is a certain expectation. You can subvert the expectations only so far before it becomes something that is no longer relatable to the audience. And the fact is, there is a commercial aspect to what we're doing here. Uh, we want to be able to sell this music 
because otherwise we don't have the economic means to make more music. We also want the pleasure of knowing that people are listening and proliferating the music, and that's part of the deal here too. We very much want the songs to become even more popular and spread around thanks to these renditions, but moreover because this is the material that we love and believe in. Yes, I mean, when you sing Moshe, you have a country twang to your voice. Yes, I do. I was raised on country music. <laughs> and not just country yussi. Not just country yussi, real hardcore country music. I, uh, I've been to my fair share of country music concerts, usually with my mother. <laughs> the first time I saw Rascal Flats in concert, uh, actually one of my favorite groups, although their recent albums leave much to be desired, but their first few albums were quite good. And the first time I saw them perform was when they, they had, they, their first album had just come out, they weren't really big yet. Uh, and they performed on stage in the summer on August 11th, 2001, in between the Twin Towers. Oh, really? Yep. Month before September 11th. Wow. Uh, I didn't realize uh, that. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, my yeah. memories of uh, 9-11 as we're now finishing our transverse <laughs> through Central Park towards the west side, 97th and Central Park West, uh, my memories are that was the starting point for the five-borough bike ride. Mm, so right. every autumn we used to gather thousands and thousands of bicycles we used to start there. And I have a picture, as many people do, looking up at the Twin Towers from the bottom and uh, seeing that marvelous moray, yeah, moray effect that you got from looking up at all those mm -hmm. tiered, shuttered metal layers. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but we all know what it is that I'm, I'm picturing. I keep an eye out for a parking space. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, Torah Me Star Trek. Good evening and welcome to a special extended version of Torah Me Star Trek as we celebrate the new movie Star Trek Into Darkness. As you know, this week's Parsha is Parsha's Balosha. Hi, I'm your Chief Navigator, Dr. Jeff Lautman, along with Transport Technician Gorf, and we're here to talk to you about Torami Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. You know, this movie had a lot to do with Kirk becoming a leader, and this Parsha, Balosha, has a lot to do about Moshe's leadership and the troubles of being a leader. In the movie, we see that Kirk is willing to do anything that he can to save the Enterprise, even sacrifice his life. But sometimes leadership can be very difficult. We see this in this week's Parsha, where Moshe complains bitterly about having to feed his nation and says, Kasher yisaho Must I take care of the Jews like a woman has to take care of her nursing child? Now, Jim Kirk never said those words. As a matter of fact, Jim Kirk never complained about being the captain of the Enterprise. He considered it an honor. There is the famous episode where he complains about the ship infecting him and about being a slave to the ship and that he can never leave it, but never bitterly complaining, And this leads us to a very fundamental question about our religion and philosophy Truly, who is greater, Moshe Rabbeinu or Jim Kirk? Or is it possible that J.J. Abrams 
And I'm pretty sure the JJ is Yosef Yechiel. That Yosef Yechiel Abrams was saying that they are one and the same. Now, for your Star Trek trivia question. There is one actor who has appeared in more Star Trek episodes than any other actor. And before you say Leonard Spock, it isn't him. I'll give you a minute to think about it, but I will tell you that they considered having him in this movie and decided that it would be just a very minute cameo appearance and it was not worth it. And that actor is Michael Dorn in the most Star Trek episodes of any character. Well, join us as transport technician Gorf and myself talk about the new movie, Star Trek Into Darkness. Live long and prosper. Hi, this is The World According to Gorf. This is your host, Dr. Jeff Lautman, temporary host, as I'd like to interview Jordan Gorfinkel about the new movie, Star Trek Into Darkness, which, believe me, both of us saw as soon as we possibly could. I will point out to you that it is no coincidence that we were not saying Tachanon around the time that the movie was released. Jordan, tell me what you thought of the movie. Well, speaking of Tachanon, it was a question of whether after the movie you laid your head down into your arms uh, in silent thanks or disappointment. I would say that J.J. Abrams, what did you say? Yosef Yechiel. Yosef Yechiel. Okay, you would do it. I would say that Yosef Yechiel succeeded in making a popcorn confection that was entertaining for the masses. I enjoyed the movie as a light action piece. I think a big part of it is because I'm so steeped in the original Star Trek, and Wrath of Khan happens to be, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan happens to be one of my absolute favorites, that this did not have the same emotional resonance as the original. Well, <clears throat> begging to disagree, I was not putting my head down in Tachnun. I was merely deciding whether I was going to say Hallel with a bracha or without a bracha. I think that he made a fantastic movie for those that had no idea what Star Trek really was, And then for those of us that were looking for the tidbits, he threw them all at us. He did a wonderful job. There were such little things that you had to know out there. For instance, did you know that the location that Kirk gives to Scotty, or the new Scotty, to go find the new weapon of destruction is the exact location and coordinates that they used in the very first Star Trek con to that planet, City Alpha 5 or City Alpha 6. It's the exact same coordinates. So obviously somebody did their homework. They did a lot of tongue-in-cheek stuff. I thought when Kirk said to Bones, enough with the metaphors, I thought that was a fantastic line. And even the soapy scene of the death of Kirk and Spock crying out Khan, you knew that was coming. It was also predictable. But I was already a swimming in Star Trek heaven at that time. I guess for me, Gene Siskel, I mean Dr. (laughs) Lautman, the problem was one of predestination. It seemed that things happened because they had to happen or that there was a reversal because you would have expected it to happen that way, so it had to be Lehefe, it had to be Adaraba. 
I will have to reluctantly agree with you partially on this, and I, I think that the movie, uh, they had to warp into our hearts because they haven't had the years of Star Trek. And I will agree also that I didn't like the new Kirk in the first movie, uh, the new movies at all. I thought it was chutzpah for him to be eating an apple when he's doing the Kobayashi Maru, which is the Kodesh HaKadoshim of the Federation. And all I thought during that scene was, how many apples did that poor actor have to eat until they got the take right? But that's part of my problem. I, I, I'm not the best judge of these things because I have a strong background in making this kind of popular entertainment. So for me, a lot of it was screenwriting 101. And, and in fact, when very early on, when the plot point of Khan's blood, which becomes important to, very important to the entire movie, uh, was first established, I leaned over to the guy that I was seeing the movie with and explained to him how this was going to pay off later on in the movie, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Well, in that, we are 100% in agreement. I leaned over to my wife, and I said the same thing. That is going to be the savior in the end. And in the beginning of the movie, when Kirk said, how many people have I lost on a mission, and the answer, of course, was none, you knew that somebody was dying. It wasn't just somebody. Holy cow, he lost boatloads of people as the ship was opened up like a, Absolutely. Well, like with a can opener. But I was going to say, for me, it's like Bryce's and Tosefta's. I think for us geeky Trekkies, which I will say I'm one of them, the Tosefta and the Bryce's were, in a way, more important than the movie if you were making references to them. I remember when we went to the first new movie with the new with the new crew, and my wife was waiting all along for the eyebrow to go up. That for, for her, that was the movie. And then when she came home, then she could go, okay, let me think, what did I see after the eyebrow went up and before the eyebrow went up? So there are those of us. We were looking for all the little things for them to throw at us, the right. references. There's no question they knew Torah Kula oh, absolutely. in this one. The, you have to give credit to the guys who were uh, writing the movie, uh, Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. Alex Kurtzman's father, by the way, is a dentist whose partner is the wife of the principal of Maimonides School in Los Angeles. There you go, Jewish geography. Jewish, Star Trek Jewish geography. How Excellent. do you like that? Now, let me just change topics here for a second. Tell me what you thought of Khan. Khan! <laughs> Benedict Cumberpatch is clearly a skilled actor who has a huge following. I missed the multi-layered Khan of old because I felt that he was a more well, multi-dimensional, interesting character. He was a, a biblical, truly a biblical character. He viewed himself as messianic. He, as played by the absolutely incomparable Ricardo Montalban, had so much charm. This actor was much more of an automaton and very cold and ruthless. Yes. And even when Spock, the old Spock, describes him as a cold and ruthless enemy, Ricardo Montalban was tactical. He would not necessarily have taken over the entire galaxy. He didn't need to do that. He needed to rule, but he would have been a benevolent ruler. This would have been a cruel ruler. Yes, yes. And I think they very clearly established the difference in characters here. Uh, I could go into all the 
ways that it, it things certain things didn't make sense logically if you thought about them I, why you had 72 people stuck in in well i i yeah i, I don't want to i don't want to give it, go ahead i will give it away it's parshas bahaloscha yeah because how many people did god say after moshe said we're going to be set as leaders and as prophets well that's 70 but there were 12 tribes and they wanted to each have 6 12 times 6 is 72 so there really were 72 Eldad and Medad who make their appearance at the end of the Parsha they were the two left out of the leaders but there were 72 I'm pretty sure Yosef Yechiel Abrams knowing that it was going to be released and most of the Jews would see it not in Parsha's Naso because released on Friday night and Shabbos, I'm certain that Jewish Star Trek fans were not there on Friday night in Shabbos, that they saw it the week of Parshas Baloska, and Yosef Yechiel had that in mind. Okay, and I'll go one step further on that and say that people from the Machaneh thought that Eldad and Medad, who were prophesizing the Lord's word, were red shirts. Ah. Alas, they were not. Moshe said, how wonderful it would be if everybody would channel the prophecy of Hashem as these two are. If everybody if everybody was a red shirt and would be led into the promised land. Ah, indeed. And in fact, one of the, the parts that I did enjoy in the movie was when somebody was told that they were getting a, a field promotion and Kirk says, put on a red shirt, and you see them looking stricken for a moment there. Right, well, yes. That was that was a wonderful. If you not if you don't know about it, there is a book that has come out, and I think it's called The Red Shirts, and it is about a uh, the group of actors that realize that if you you wear a red shirt, you're toast, and it's the way that they try to save themselves within the series so that they're not killed off. A very entertaining book. In any event, I'm being perhaps very hard on the movie. I have admiration for the quality and the love that was clearly put into this. And the care that they took once again to balance the needs of many over the needs of one, the needs of many being the oilum, the larger population of movie-going people, as opposed to the needs of the one, which are the trekkers. I'm sure, as people have told me upon repeated viewings, I will let go of whatever difficulties I have with the movie and enjoy it. The same way, for example, that when I saw Superman the movie, the original Christopher Reeve movie, way, way, way back when, the first viewing, you're shocked because it doesn't look like the source material in the comic book. And then the second time, you let go of all of that history that you're carrying around in a very heavy suitcase and you just enjoy. Let me ask you this. Prognosticate on where the third movie would be going. And I will question. and I will say that I think one of the missions of the second movie was to make Kirk more of a likable leader. I don't think he came away at the end of the first movie as the Kirk of the original series. And I think that they very purposely went out to do that. The other characters were pretty solidly set. Now where will we go with the third movie? Well, I thought, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll give props to the movie makers that the scene between Kirk and his father figure, his Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you will, in the, the famous hero's journey that Joseph Conrad concretized, he stipulates that in all good drama, you need to have a mentor figure, a Yitro, if you will, who will step out of the way, will teach and then step out of the way, usually through death, but it doesn't have to be that way, so that 
the student can become the master. And let me point out that in this week's Parsha's Mahalosha, Yitro steps out of the way. Oh, see? Very well done. And by the way, let me just tell you where those uh, primitive beings came from. A group of primitive beings whose gift was stolen by Kirk and McCoy, and they were chasing after them to try to get it back again. They were extra actors also in a previous fantastic movie. They were the people in the very first episode of Indiana Jones who were chasing him through the Amazon forest. Very good. So it's more than just one George Lucas franchise that is inspiring J.J. Abrams here. It's two of them. So you have the opening from Indiana Jones, and then the rest of the movie is Star Wars because it's Luke Skywalker who gets instructed or taught uh, inspired, indeed, by his mentor father character, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or Admiral Pike, and loses his mentor character, his father figure, and then, through the friendship of an irascible friend, Han Solo, Mr. Spock, has to find his way towards leadership and by the end, although he has quite a journey to continue on, he is certainly on the derach. I would think, though, that a Vulcan might be offended by the adjective irascible. <laughs> However, he would not give it up in any way because that would be an emotion and he would not want to admit to that. So you ask, where do you think the next movie is going? I think clearly Captain Kirk is going to Dagobah to learn the ways of the Force from Yoda. That's where the third movie is going. Uh, I think we're going into romance. I think we're going to see the romance between Uhura and Spockro and between Captain uh, Science Officer Marcus and uh, Jim Kirk grow, grow, grow. By the way... And, of course, the bromance between Kirk and Spock grow as well. Excellent. And as a matter of fact, in my Shmuel class, which I teach on Shabbat, we are about to encounter David and Yonatan, and it is quite obvious to me that either God pattern, as a matter of fact, I will state it this way, we are certain that God pattern David and Yonatan after the friendship of Kirk and Spock, because to say otherwise would be heretical. If you say that Kirk and Spock's relationship is patterned after David and Yonatan, then you are assuming that God's relationship to time is linear. Since God transcends time, the relationship between Kirk and Spock was already there when David and Yonatan arrived. So I am certain that they are patterned after Kirk and Spock. Logical, Captain. <laughs> now, here is your trivia question to see whether we can promote you. Move I like you. it in the transporter room. Well, we're going to move you up. Somebody has got to test the warp core. You'll shine in this one. So in the first movie, we are told Uhura is the first name. Now, there are two characters whose first name we are revealed not in the original series. Can you tell me who they are and what their names were? Well, perhaps we should give the audience a moment to come up with the answers themselves. I do know the answer to these questions. And uh, in the meantime, perhaps I can ask you an important question, which is, what is your connection to Star Trek? Why is it so strong? You are a doctor, a man of logic and science, and Star Trek obviously appeals to you not only for that logic and science that has always been a central core of its storytelling, but also the characters and the fantasy. So tell us a little bit. I would think uh, being a century too late for the Yeshiva Musser movement in the late 1800s, I think that's the appeal of Star Trek. 
if you if you were to follow the Midos of Star Trek, you would certainly be a more Shalim individual in your Bein Adam Lachavero. That is the goal of where no man has gone before. It's to correct the Midos that we have. I'm always reminded of the episode with Frank Gorshin, the half-white, half-black face, as showing what's so wrong with the world. And I'm thinking that episode, more than anything, sold me on not paying attention to the space, the outer space part of Star Trek, but rather the inner space part of Star Trek. As Spock learned from Kirk, why, when Kirk asked him, why did you, do you want to know why I went back to save you? And Spock learned what he couldn't learn through all the science academies in Vulcan, because you are my friend. That's the inner space where not no man has gone before, where every man must go. Is there a parallel that we can draw between the Kirk and Spock relationship and Moshe Rabbeinu and somebody else? I, I thought about that, and no, I don't think so. I thought, is it Moshe Rabbeinu and Yahushua? No, because they're, they're too close as far as equality goes. They complement, they reflect each other. Moshe did not have a character in his life and in his, in, in his life and in his story who was a foil. What about a father figure? The father figure was Yitro, clearly. And Paro, believe it or not. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Where did Moshe get his education? Moshe got his education in the best Egyptian schools, universities that could have been at that time. And that's why I think that Moshe was able to talk to God in Parsha Shemos quite freely. One has to assume that he had been taught about deities and about encounters with deities and therefore was not as taken aback. It does say, But it doesn't say that he was afraid to talk. And I will show you a little trup thing. There are three people that God calls to speak. In, in two words, Avram, Avram, Yaakov, Yaakov, Moshe, Moshe. The trump for Avram and Yaakov breaks up the first name and the second time the name is repeated. Avram, pause, Avram. Yaakov, pause, Yaakov. As if to give the character a moment to try to react, what is that voice? Who is that voice? What do I do with that voice? Moshe is the only time where the trump is connected. The two words, Moshe, Moshe. Moshe doesn't need the time to reflect on who this is, he understands that it is a deity, it is going to be our God. And I don't think Moshe has a foil. So I, I could not compare Moshe to Kirk truly and Moshe to have a foil, but I do think, and when we explore in our class coming up the next few weeks, David and Yonatan, oh boy, are we going to be filled with McCoy-like metaphors about Kirk and Spock. There's an interesting journey that the new crew has taken that perhaps the original cast took but we never saw before, and that is equivalent in a way to B'nai Israel not being the, the generation that, the Dora Midbar, the generation that left um, Egypt and traveled the desert. They were not permitted into the Promised Land. This crew was nearly not permitted to enter the promised land of the five-year mission. Everything up till now has been in advance of that. And McCoy clearly says, oh no, five years in space, like it's an unbearable thing. Well, imagine if he had had 40 years in space. Well, one would think that after about three and a half years, McCoy is going to run out of metaphors. 
But somehow I think that that's not going to happen. No, no, clearly not. And it's also interesting that McCoy's middle name, Leonard David McCoy, I wonder if there is uh, a J. Well, there, there's JJ, Jonathan. I don't know. Is there, I'm reaching for connections that perhaps aren't there. Looking to see if there's a Jonathan character in Star Trek. Jonathan Frakes. Frakes, yes, I was thinking of that. Right. Yeah. McCoy is God. Let me ask you this. Which new character has got his old character down the most? I'm not looking for somebody who's taking it further, because they all will take their characters further and in different ways. But in the beginning, the characters want to be exactly like. So who is exactly like their original? I would say that uh, Carl Urban has done a wonderful job with McCoy. Yeah, I'd have to give him the statue. Uh, yeah, I think he's, he's really, especially when you consider that he's from Australia and has an Australian accent. Oh, he's done, he's done a fantastic job. He's done a really good job. And the answer to your trivia question before is Niyota Uhura and Hikaru Sulu. There you go. Well, this is your chief navigator, Dr. Jeff Lautman, officially promoting Technician Gorf, Chief Whoremaster. He's in charge of the Warp Corps. And he's going to take us to places we've never gone before. Oh, no. But you know what the problem with being the chief of the Warp Corps is? Every single time a bad guy takes over the Enterprise, he conks me on the back of the head with a hard object to knock me out and then steal the dilithium crystals. Well, you're going to have to also eject the Warp Corps and blow it up every couple episodes. That's true. That's true. And by the way, the Warp Corps now, it looks like a beer factory. <laughs> Inside of a beer factory. What happened to, you know, the, the shiny, blinky, blimpy type central object? No by the way, in the third movie, you watch. You're going to see some characters from Star Trek The Next Generation pop in and have some roles. Because they're always going to have to feed us Trekkies with a little bit of Lecha Mishnah. And so now, you know, they brought the old Spock back in. And by the way, if you've not seen the Audi commercial, go online and see the Audi commercial. Wonderfully done. But now they're going to throw us some more bones. The Audi commercial that features both Spocks, both actors who play Spock interacting. Okay. Well, this is Chief Navigator Dr. Jeff Lautman, along with Chief Warp Corps Technician Gorf, wishing you live long and prosper. And have a great Shabbos, and uh, I'm trying to think of something, uh, let's see, live long and prosper. I, I know I, what Spock would say. Hey, don't take all the meat from the chillin. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The World According to Gorf on the Nachum Siegel Network. I extend my thanks and appreciation to the two doctors, and that is not a reference to a Doctor Who episode, although given the content on today's show, I suppose it could be. The two doctors who appeared on today's episode of The World According to Gorf, Dr. Moshe Cohn and Dr. Jeffrey Lautman. As always, you can find me online at facebook.com slash the world according to Gorf. Please visit jewishcartoon.com, jewishcartoon.com for your weekly dose of funny and relatable Jewish cartoons by yours truly, Gorf. And, of course, enjoy all the latest Jewish music, especially the latest release from Sameach Music, Acapella Treasury, Yom Tov. In future episodes... 
I look forward to including you in my many summer travels. I will be going to summer camps all across this nation and teaching Torah from the perspective of cartooning. It is the Gorf Jewish Cartoon Workshop, and it's not too late to sign up your summer camp for the program. Contact me, as always, through our Facebook page or just email me at gorf at jewishcartoon.com. In fact, I'll be doing double duty at one of the summer camps that I'll be visiting. I will not only be leading the Jewish Cartoon Workshop, but I will also be in concert with my act Simcha and Gorfinkel, with my friend and music partner Sean Altman, who, by the way, is singing with me on this theme song, which tells us that it's time to wrap up today's episode. This is Gorf, once again thanking you for listening to The World According to Gorf and wishing everybody always Shalom. Shalom, shalom.